Hello and welcome to The Stack. It's going to be a varied show. From a newspaper devoted to airline vintage maps, to a publication showcasing the best of Pakistan, it's all in here. I also had the pleasure to speak with Peter Tatcho and the director of a new Netflix documentary called Hating Peter Tatcho. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up on the show, we talk with the founder of Direction of Travel, a publication devoted to airline vintage maps, and also with Anand Hussein, founder and creative director of Capra Falconeri Traveler. But let's start the show with something different. A new documentary that is currently available on Netflix is called Hating Peter Tatcho, about the life of activist Peter Tatcho. The documentary was directed by Christopher Amos and features rare footage and also a conversation between Peter and actor Ian McKellen. I had the pleasure to speak with both Peter and Christopher. But first, let's hear from Peter and how his Australian roots defined his activism. Certainly, my Australian roots were very influential in the type of activist I've become over the last five decades. Absolutely, and that's, that's what I found so interesting to find out. But one thing that I really admire about your activism is that you really go, you know, for everyone that deserves kind of, you know, a protest against, you know, either Mugabe, you know, Putin, Russia, uh, all sorts of religions. And I think that's quite admirable. Do you think sometimes, you know, the LGBT community or it becomes a bit kind of, especially in countries, in the wealthier countries, they feel a little bit like, you know, we have our rights and, and they don't feel this need to be an activist anymore. Do, do you feel that, especially in the wealthier countries with more LGBT laws and forgetting about a world that is still very much at the end of the film, I think more than 70 countries where it's illegal to have a consensual relationship between same-sex couples? I think there is an element of apathy and complacency, partly born out of the huge successes we have undoubtedly won in Western countries. You know, in Britain, for example, up until 1999, we had by volume the largest number of anti-LGBT plus laws of any country in the world, some of them dating back centuries. Yet within 14 years, by 2013, with the legalization of same-sex marriage, we had some of the best laws. So it's easy to see why a lot of people think, ah, oh, the battle's over, the battle's won. But there are still issues to fight, even here in Britain. You know, currently we are still struggling to get the government to ban LGBT plus conversion therapy, which as we all know is unethical, ineffective and harmful. You know, we are still fighting the government to reform the Gender Recognition Act to give trans people greater rights. Uh, we're still battling the government to ensure safe haven for LGBT plus refugees fleeing persecution in countries like Bangladesh, Russia, Iran and Saudi Arabia. So the battles have been won on many, many fronts, but there are still battles to fight. And of course, globally, <laughs> battles have, have got so, so far to go still with, as you say, 70 countries still criminalizing same-sex relations, 
and 11 countries still having the death penalty. I absolutely love the way the film ends as well, talking about the World Cup in Qatar next year, because it's almost like it's preparing us for hating Peter Tacho to the sequel, you know, because, you know, as, as you said, it never ends. I mean, it's absurd. I mean, of course, we know about what happened in Russia, but I mean, it's not that Qatar is an LGBT plus heaven, right? Absolutely not. I mean, one of the things that's their big dirty secret is the fact they have secret, basically re-education clinics for LGBT plus people. Although the laws in Qatar can lead to being jailed, and some would say there are certain interpretations of law that could even lead gay people to be put to death, mostly that doesn't happen. What happens is that families and police or whatever get gay people put into these special centers which are practicing a form of conversion therapy where there is a combination of physical deprivation and psychological pressure in a bid to turn them straight. And I'm hoping at some point to do a big expose about that, but it's really difficult to get Qataris with inside knowledge to speak out because of course they fear retribution, if not against themselves and against their families and other friends and associates. Looking at the film is, is actually, I don't know where you felt more scared. I mean, the, your confrontation with Mugabe, I mean, the footage of that is just impressive. But do you, do you, do you felt quite scared with the Mugabe confrontations or in Russia? Because in Russia, some aspects of it can look quite sinister, you know, when it comes to kind of LGBT. I, I could even see in the film, not that you weren't sure, but there was kind of a lot of worries in your head. Well, absolutely. I mean, going to Russia, going to Putin's Russia to try and do a protest is a big gamble. First of all, given my reputation, I was going to be under police and security agency surveillance. So we had to take extreme evasive measures to avoid talking on open channels about what we were planning to do. We had to often go by circuitous routes to places and change trains several times. It was really cat and mouse, but amazingly, we pulled it off. I mean, I can remember even as I, I, I lay in wait in the cafe, you know, about an hour before I was due to do that protest by Red Square, I was expecting the secret police to come in and arrest me. And particularly as I walked across the square from the cafe, I was so out of the corner of my eyes looking, you know, expecting to be swooped on. But amazingly, amazingly, I did pull it off. And, you know, I got to speak there to the media and the assembled crowd for two or three minutes before the police intervened. But they were pretty quick. And, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, the fact that they sent a English speaking officer suggested that somehow they got wind that something was going to happen and they were in the vicinity, in the region of that area. And Peter, you, you were telling me your stories in Russia. I love that you take it as a global cause because I agree with you. And, and sorry if, if, if my comparison might sound a bit weird, but it, it's like with COVID-19, it needs to be a global response. We can't just think about specific countries. Cool, you know, Denmark's amazing for LGBT rights, but what about the rest of the world? So it's very impressive and admirable what you do. And I guess you have a quite an amazing connection of people that you know all over the world, not only here in the UK, that kind of helps with your causes as well. 
Yeah, I can remember when I began campaigning as a teenager, other people around me always saw the battle as being, you know, one in this country. I always had a global view. I always took the perspective that the battle for queer rights is global and that we cannot rest until every LGBT plus person on this planet uh, is free and equal. And it's funny that the, the title of the film, Hating Peter Tatro, I know, I know that at points you're very much kind of, well, a hate figure for some, but not today. I think today, you, you, you know, there's a lot of respect towards you. So I think it's kind of, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Or, or do you think there's still a lot of people actually hating you? Well, I think um, the director, Christopher Amos, came up with the title because when he was researching the project, he was astonished by the scale of vitriol and hatred directed against me simply for speaking out for universal human rights. So that's how the title came about. And of course, it's also quite good because it's catchy. It, it, it grabs your attention. But I think you're right. Over the last five decades, I've sort of gone from being, quote, public enemy number one, quote, the most hated man in Britain, to being something of a, of a national treasure. Now, I haven't changed. But I think society has changed, and I'm very proud that I've been part of that process with many other people to bring about that change in public attitudes, not just towards LGBT plus people, but towards women, black and ethnic minority peoples, people with disabilities, and many, many others. You just heard there from Peter Tatchell, but now let's hear the behind the scenes with the director of the documentary, Christopher Amos. For Peter's story, I basically followed a template that you would for a superhero movie. So you have this early origin story to, so you could see what his um, motivations were and sort of see the, the child growing up to see what sort of person they might become. And I always, for me, that's what I would want to know if I watched a movie about someone, a biography film, you sort of, that's what's really interesting, I think, like when you watch a biographical film like Amy Winehouse, for instance, and you see like what they were like as children, because you kind of particularly, you sort of look at that and think, I wonder what that's going to turn into sort of thing. But for Peter, he's not so widely known. So to have an origin story so early on in the film was a little bit tricky because if I, we did a little three-minute pre-roll sequence where you sort of got a bit of an update on who he was, what the film was going to be about, and we're using that as the teaser. So that way people were already aware like of the activism before we got to that sort of family history stuff in the film. Yeah, so you you know, you get to look back in time. It was very difficult because there's no video footage of Peter at that age. There's just photos and stills. So sort of for a film, you've got to build it into something that is visually storytelling with like moving picture. So that was a bit of a challenge for that segment. But yeah, I'm really happy with it. How, how is he perceived uh, in Australia? Because, you know, he moved to the UK when, you know, he was still very young. What's his image? Because he's very well known here in the UK. I mean, he's, uh, you know, it's almost like a national treasure. Uh, and then I wonder, how is his image in Australia? Yeah, he doesn't have the same sort of profile here his profile here is more limited to specialty news networks that sort of cater for a sort of 
uh, an older crowd, sort of 50 plus educated readers as well of different newspapers like The Guardian where articles over there get syndicated here and The Independent, things like that. But he, they do um, circle back to him whenever he does a big protest, like he did the one in Moscow, for instance, uh, he was doing press interviews to Australia from Moscow when I was there filming with him. There's a sequence in the film actually where he's talking to the ABC doing a live TV moment and he was on screen for about four minutes. I was in the hotel room filming him and I was filming him. He was talking to his mobile phone camera and he'd been awake for 40 hours and arrested and released in that time before that interview. And we were waiting up to two in the morning. That's how dedicated he is. He just wanted to make sure that he was, you know, capitalizing on the arrest, even if it meant staying up to 2 a.m. in the morning to speak to Australian, you know, because it was morning breakfast TV at that point for Australia. So, yeah, so, I mean, it does have a, a profile here in Australia, but definitely I'm hoping not definitely, but I'm hoping this film will kind of elevate that a little bit for him. I think there's a lot of the story can help organisations here in terms of their direct action and inspire people here on the ground, hopefully. Hopefully turn him into a bit of a role model for LGBT community here, potentially. I think being on Netflix, I think that will certainly help as well. It's such an incredible platform for it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it was always where we wanted it to end up because of the eye, like getting eyeballs. But we also sort of want to get into film festivals as well because not everyone has Netflix either. So I've kind of made the film so that it might last a long time as well. So you could watch it in a few years' time and still watch it and go, wow, that was a great film. So I'm hoping even after Netflix, it will go on Channel 4 or BBC or something like that. So new audiences will come to it over the years yeah it's interesting you mentioned that you filmed as a superhero film because i kind of noticed that especially at the end because when you're talking about qatar so it was like you know this is not the end there's still so many battles you know to be fought so i, I thought it was actually quite a clever ending as well for the film <laughs> yeah yeah like like yeah it was it's a bit tongue-in-cheek as well isn't it because it's like okay action man like James Bond what's his next mission he is in a way right <laughs> yeah well it felt like it when we were in Russia because it was like literally with a backpack a survival kit and we would leave the hotel and then um everything he had on him was in case he got arrested because he didn't he would leave the hotel thinking I might not come back here. So, so that's how he basically lives when he's on an action. Punched and kicked by anti-gay protesters in Moscow today. Before being arrested by police. Being targeted for violent attack comes with the territory. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Tatchell. Stop homophobia in the Commonwealth. Peter Tatchell has devoted his life to proceeding for homosexuals. There was Peter Tatchell there and Christopher Amos. Hating Peter Tatchell is out now, available on Netflix.
And now for a change of pace and back to print. A newspaper dedicated to airline vintage maps. I mean, how cool is that? Each volume covers a different set of airlines who are either aligned or opposed, geographically or graphically. Monocle's culture editor spoke to the founder of Direction to Travel, Christian Noll. It's basically uh, a product that's come out of my collection of, of maps. You know, everybody's got their little collection, or some people have anyway, I should say, you know, collect stuff on and off. But I've always thought I could do something with it rather than just have it sit around. And then a sort of the big breakthrough came from me. Oh, initially, I was like, oh, it'd be nice to do a book, but they all seemed to be quite daunting to me because there's a publisher involved and it's, it's a much more complicated process in some ways. And then the sort of breakthrough came, I was like, hold on a second newspaper seems like an obvious medium for maps you know you have that sort of very tangible large format paper really immediate very accessible uh, way of reproducing things and i thought if we plunk some maps onto a page and suddenly we can go quite big and we can go experiment a bit and i thought this would be a really nice way of sort of bringing stuff out of you know at the moment all my maps are just in boxes and they're only really enjoyed by me um and I thought the newspaper would be a great medium where they could sort of meet each other and also hopefully there'll be an audience for it, which it turns out there is. Was there any part of you that was influenced by the year that was to do this finally? I mean, obviously you already had the collection, but was there an element of nostalgia for travel? Was there an element of maybe not being able to do it as much as you normally would? Or how did, I guess, the timing of it come into play in terms of the launch? Oh, definitely, because I was like, you know, it wasn't, we weren't able to go anywhere. And I was, there was no travel involved. There was just, you know, you're sitting at home most of the time. And I was just thinking now is that there's a chance here to kind of like, you know, this is no excuse to kind of be a little bit nostalgic about what air travel used to be like and go back and look at some of these beautiful maps, which were, you know, obviously most of these maps are from like 1930 to 1970. So it was the sort of golden age of that kind of travel. And I thought, and also the more you sort of read about how air travel now is, it, there's nothing sort of golden about it. It's not particularly nice. I mean, I haven't actually been back on an aircraft for a long time, but I thought here's a, an opportunity to kind of take some of these maps, to tell these stories, to put them, you know, out there. So my starting point was to take two very global airlines like American and United who produce a huge amount of maps and put them into uh, the first edition of the paper. But yeah, so it definitely was. Mm-hmm. What about the public and the audience that you say you have kind of discovered is really interested in this? Where are you distributing? How much are you printing? Who's buying this? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's a very, at the, at the moment, it's quite a limited distribution. I mean, I have, have the Monocle shop in Zurich. I have Mac Culture. I'm working on getting a couple other shops in play because I really want to get the physical uh, retail outlet because it's, there's something really nice about going to a shop and discovering things. I mean, there's obviously, we also have an There's a website where you can buy it. There's an Instagram account and all that stuff. But I think for me, I really wanted to get into shops Mm -hmm. because there's that sense of discovery. And also I wanted to be seen almost like a normal newspaper. You know, you go along and go like, oh, there's the FT, there's that. Oh, there's a, what is that? You know, I want that kind of level of sort of surprise and discovery, uh, which you don't get online. So there's been, I've had some great, you know, great feedback as well from people who just go like, this is brilliant because there's, What's nice about it, because I've decided to publish, you know, things in different volumes so that each volume would then tackle different airlines. And and that's, it's also made it quite a bit more playful in some ways, rather than try to do, say, a book where you have everything in one. I've had given myself a little bit of a of sort of playroom here to be a bit more uh, experimental 
but at the moment it's a you know it's a quite a limited distribution quite a limited print run as well but again it's all done on print on demand so it's it's very easy for me to sort of scale up as well if the interest is out there Amazing. No, I, I completely agree with the idea of doing it on newsprint because I think it makes it so much more accessible. And also, some of these things you kind of want to almost hang as posters or you want to be able to take the page apart and keep it for yourself. And you'd never do that with a big old kind of Taschen book. But with this, you might buy two copies of the paper and kind of also keep some as like proper keepsakes as well. So I really, I think that you're onto something really beautiful there. I wanted to ask you about how you came to have this amazing collection. Just a quick question on just to get back on the basis that the newspaper is designed to be pulled apart. So there's actually in there, the double page spread in the middle is actually frameable. So we kind of think about that in terms of design. But in terms of the... Uh, it's just something I've been collecting for the last probably 10, 15 years. I've always been slightly obsessive about aviation. So a lot of other work I've done tends to sort of revolve around that. And then on the side, I've just kept basically plowing through eBay and A-books and private collectors and slowly, slowly building up a collection. I've become more and more so specific about the kind of stuff I was looking for. And also discovering that there's these airlines out there who I've never heard of who've been producing this incredible stuff. And you're going like, how can nobody know about this? You know, and it's just sometimes you buy things slightly blind thinking, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be like. And then you get stuff back and you go, oh, my God, this is incredible. Like um, a 1970s Iran Air in-flight magazine has the most beautiful map and the photography is incredible. And you go, and this is so rich. And, and you know, it's really thanks to eBay that all these things are, that I'm able to find all this stuff. So it is a, sort of a slow build up a collection that's sort of been gathered over time slightly obsessive as well especially recently now it's got a new momentum which is really nice because now i'm sort of putting the finishing touches on other volumes of it i'm thinking where are the missing pieces but it's also for me it's been very much about you know making this stuff accessible there's stuff out there that's really well known which is really expensive to get hold of but there's also a huge amount of stuff which you can just get really cheaply and you know that nobody might you know you're just going to share it with people really Mm-hmm. And is it just you or how big is the team actually putting it together? It's just me. It's entirely a, a one-man band at the moment. Yeah. Well, congratulations on uh, just the multi-purpose uh, skill set that you've clearly got. I wanted to ask you, you know, we were talking about earlier about how this is, I guess, a representation of this golden era of aviation. And I wonder if putting it together this has also given you a bit of a perspective on the ways that the travel industry might want to change in the future. You know, we've talked so much about this past year has been a complete watershed moment and many industries have had to rethink themselves completely. What do you think the current aviation industry can learn from those times? Is it possible to kind of learn something from this golden era still? Yeah, I think there needs to be a sense of, of joy that needs to be sort of reintroduced, a sense of wonderment as well. I think there's, there's been so much a transaction these days. It's like, and, and it's still an incredible thing. I mean, I, I, and I, maybe I'm being a, a naive child here, but I still find it incredibly exciting to, to be basically waiting for takeoff. At this moment, you go, this is pretty spectacular. And I think there's an element that, you know, you go through this stuff and it's like, a lot of the older maps, they've, you know, they've explained the countries you flew over. Like, this is what was there. This, you know, that little sort of nuggets of information that they would give you. And I think there's a huge amount of takeaway from that in terms of like just trying to create a bit more of an experience around it rather than just making it a transactional thing. There was Christian Knoll there from Direction to Travel. For more information, go to directionoftravel.com. 
And finally on the show, a cool new publication showcasing the best of Pakistan. It's a country with enormous beauty, but at the same time suffering from an image problem. Anand Hussain, founder and creative director of Capra Falconeri Traveler, wants to challenge that with her new magazine. The first issue is dedicated to the adventurous side of Pakistan. Here is Anand with more. She also explains the title of the magazine. So Capra Falconeri is the scientific name of the National Animal Law of Pakistan, which is a marfor. That is the, the mountainous goat of Pakistan. It's, it's a very rare species and it's particularly found in the Himalayas. Uh, it has very striking features, its spiral horns, the entire you know, characteristics of um, this animal. It, it's quite a rare and special um, species in Pakistan. And um, because of its recent fascinating story that it was at the um, brink of extinction and because of community-based conservation, um, it's actually re-emerging and it's, you know, the numbers are increasing in Pakistan. And I think it went very well with the image of Pakistan as well, because it seems to be the travel industry of Pakistan is changing. I think with the current government of Imran Khan, you know, they're trying to really help push the uh, tourism of Pakistan. And I thought it goes really well with the whole concept. And tell us more about your experience from Pakistan. You, you were born in Pakistan, right? But now, of course, you're, you're based in the UK. Yeah, so I'm also a diaspora journalist. Um, so a lot of my work is also based on writing about Pakistan. I've written across various publications, most notably Al Jazeera, Condonast, as well as Dawn Pakistan News. So I was born in Pakistan. I was born in Lahore, which is the second largest city of Pakistan and the capital of Punjab province. And I live in the UK and Birmingham. So I come under the definition of a diaspora and Pakistan has always been beyond the summer school holidays for me. Uh, I'm both an insider and an outsider. So what I mean by that is some of the experiences that I've experienced are very different from what a normal tourist will do in a week or two weeks travel journey. So mine have been a good three, four months during each um, visit. And I've been visiting since childhood almost every single year. So I've had those family connections and, you know, doing things like what the locals usually do. So being involved in the same sort of activities and festivals. And I think many second and third generation Pakistanis living in the UK who travel back and forth to see family have a similar experience to mine. And by the way, talking about the magazine, there's amazing features. And I have to say, a lot of places in Pakistan, I mean, that I never even seen it, you know, kind of on a travel article. For example, I think one of the first articles from the Atabad Lake, I mean, what a stunning place. It's just incredible. And the water is so kind of blue. It's, it's an interesting kind of a tone of color. Have you, have you ever been there? Actually? I haven't been to Atabad Lake. I've done most of the northern places. So there's Naran, Kagan, there's Sabat, Bali, there's Murray, um, the, the city streets as well from Lahore to Karachi. Pakistan is ripe with adventure opportunities. You will find adventure and nature immersed locations in every nook and cranny of Pakistan. It's a country with a seemingly endless rotation of landscapes. And do you think, I mean, we were mentioning this at the beginning of the interview, that of course you will sell this magazine, you know, outside Pakistan as well, but do you think even people in Pakistan might be interested to read or, or, even, or even see the magazine as like as a good demonstration of soft power for the country as well? Yeah, I think the readership market in Pakistan, in terms of print readership, is very low compared to outside of Pakistan. 
but for sure it has been very much appreciated in bookstores in Pakistan, like Liberty Bookstore. They, they're very happy to, you know, stock the copies of the magazine there. But I do think the more potential for this magazine is outside of Pakistan. That was Anang Hussein there. The first issue of Kapar Falconeri Traveler is out now. You can find out more information on cftpakistanmag.co.uk. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Before we go, a little song for you. This is Modern Talking with Jet Airliner. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Oh